The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. Good morning, beloved. Some of you are reading the red sheet. Just hold off on that. Just, just wait. Today we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 9. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles there. Isaiah 9. Our passage this week and next is Isaiah 9, 2 through 7. And very familiar passage. Uh, in God's kindness, it's our seasonal reminder that the eternal Son of the Trinity became the God-man of redemptive history. And in that is our hope. I'm going to read our passage, then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to um, address some background, background things that I, I want to bridge from where we were two weeks ago in Isaiah 6 to get us up to Isaiah 9. The word of the Lord. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of peace, of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Let's pray. Precious Lord, we pause, identifying our dependence in your greatness. That's why we're praying. We are needy, you are the supply, so we look to you as the God of light who shines into our darkness. No amount of darkness can quench the light. And in that we find great, great hope. Hold hearts this morning that are broken. That are wrestling with the weight of the curse. Encourage them today. That though dawn may appear like lingering night, it is not so. Comfort them with the fact that the light has risen. 
and comfort them also by the fact that it's not yet noon. So we're expecting far more and far better than we have right now. Give us hope. Give us help. Through Christ I pray. Amen. All right, our passage has two parts, a declaration and a ground. The declaration that light and joy has come, though not yet in Isaiah's day, still future hope, and then the reasons for light and joy. We see them in verses 4 through 7, three conjunctions, four, 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 three reasons, all of them building on each other. Today, our focus is going to be on verses 2 and 3, but to get there, we need to build a bridge. So, here's where we're headed. For those once in darkness, the Lord has caused light and joy to increase because His raising up a divine king ensures the downfall of every enemy and relief from every oppressor. That's hope. And for Isaiah, it was merely future anticipation. For us, it is already the dawn of realization. Already, yet, not yet. So we begin in Isaiah 6, where we left off. You'll recall, it was Isaiah's encounter with the Holy One. It's Isaiah... 6, not Isaiah 1, and the, and the prophet held off giving us his call narrative, his initial encounter to set a context for the absolute need for this message. We started this study months ago, back in Isaiah 1, seeing the absolute desperate state, the brokenness of Israel's Judah, and their need for a savior. The absolute absence of righteousness and justice in the land and the promise that God by his own arm would work that justice in the future. Into that world Isaiah encounters the holy one. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God almighty. The whole earth is or will be filled with glory and Isaiah gets gra- gets uh, grabbed in his soul. And falls on his face. I'm a man of unclean lips. God redeems him, cleanses him, and sends him out on a mission. And it was a hard mission. So turn in your Bibles back to chapter 6. Who remembers? Who can summarize for us what the mission was? What was the nature of that mission? Anybody? Speak up. A hardening. Blind eyes. Make deaf the ears lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and turn and be healed. These are a people who have turned from God, and what we're hearing in Isaiah is that the Lord determined to give them over to their debased mind, to give them over to their impurity. So we saw that sin is not only worthy of judgment, sin itself is judgment. For Israel, their sin, their blindness, their deafness to the Word of God, their inability to hear and listen, the resilience of their heart, 
was part of the judgment of God for who they were and what they wanted to be. Rebellious, stubborn, unbelieving. And then the question is, how long, God, do I have to give this kind of a message? How long do I have to take a book and proclaim this book, Isaiah, to them as if it were sealed so that they couldn't read it, so that they couldn't hear it? How long? How long was it? What did we learn at the end of chapter 6? In the history of Israel, what do we call that stage? When the cities lie in waste and the cities are uninhabited. The exile. The culmination of death. Separation from the presence of God. We already saw it in Genesis. Adam and Eve enjoying fellowship with the great king in his earthly tabernacling presence called the Garden of Eden. And out they went, separated from the presence of God. Now Israel is called to be a royal priesthood. Adam was called to subdue, have dominion, to serve and to guard. That's what kings do, that's what priests do. He was the first royal priest. Israel as a nation is called to be like Adam, and they're given their own sanctuary land. And they're running from God and not living like God would have them live. And so the message is judgment. Judgment is coming, and you'll continue to proclaim judgment until the exile reaches its completion. Indeed, it says, though a tenth remain in it, verse 13 of chapter 6, it will be burned again. So exile comes. Nine-tenths of the population are either dead or taken out of the country. And then fire will come and burn more. Deeper level judgment. Like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. It'll just burn and burn the fire and it will dwindle down to, then it says, the holy seed is its stump. The holy seed. The holy offspring. And this could be taken in two ways. The fire is going to burn and burn and burn all the way down until the woods, all that's left in the woods is a single stump. And the hope is there's still a remnant. A remnant of one. And out of that single stump will grow a new covenant, a new creational garden. That's, that's where Isaiah is going to go. We've already seen that stemming from Isaiah 1. Right now, Israel's like a garden that doesn't produce, so God will burn it, and there will be, in that burning, in that judgment, in that curse, it will all dwindle down to one, a holy stump, a holy seed. Now, that seed could be a remnant of many, or it could be the one that represents the many. We move into chapter 7. Chapter 7 is a judgment oracle against the king whom, who was alive specifically at this point in Isaiah's ministry. His name was Ahaz. And what we learn is Ahaz is the king in Judah. 
We've got a divided empire, and the northern king, his name is given initially, Pekka, in verse 1, but after this, it's as if Isaiah forgets his name. It's, it's part of his power. He just calls him, as in verse 5, the son of Ramalia. He won't even name the king in the northern kingdom anymore. He identifies him, and then he just calls him the son of Ramalia. What was his name? And that son of Ramalia up in the northern kingdom had made an alliance with Syria. That's how our ESV translates it. It's ancient Aram. So here's the northern kingdom, and here is Ahaz sitting in Jerusalem. And the king of Israel and the king of Aram had joined arms, and the rising power in the north is Assyria. They are up there. And these two had joined into cahoots, made an alliance against Assyria. And they had wanted Ahaz and Judah to do the same, and he refused. But now, what we have is Israel and Aram that are coming against Ahaz and Judah, and he's freaking out. And Isaiah comes and gives him a message. This is what we read. Look at verses 8 and 9. The head of Syria, Aram, is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. It's the name of the king of Damascus. Within 65 years, Ephraim, which is the main tribe in Israel, Ephraim, so it's using Ephraim as shorthand for the entire northern kingdom because it included the capital, Samaria. Ephraim will be shattered from being a people within 65 years. The head of Ephraim is Samaria. The head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. So are you sure you want to... So Ahaz is wondering, do I... Um, one way to halt war is for me to surrender and align myself with these two guys in the north. And Isaiah is saying, do you really want to align yourself with this wickedness in the north? 65 years from now, neither one of these kingdoms are going to even be around. Indeed, in 723, Assyria is going to come and destroy Israel. But by 65 years from this date, I know I have... Uh, in 671... This is when we read in 2 Kings that Assyria, having destroyed Samaria, then sends a whole bunch of settlers in, Gentiles, from the nations, from Assyria, and they get settled in, in, the, in these, this northern kingdom. And that's where we get the people called the Samaritans. Because the Samaritans are a mixture of the poorest of the poor who were left in Israel... And they marry these foreign settlers from Assyria, and so you've got a mixed group that the Old Testament 
calls the Samaritans. And then we see them showing up in the New Testament. So they're a mixture in this northern part that's going to be destroyed, a mixture of pure Jewish blood and foreign blood. And Isaiah is anticipating that this is going to happen. The word of the Lord is declaring it's going to be so. And then verse 9, at the very end of it, it says, if you are not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. That's Isaiah's word to Ahaz. Meaning, are you going to trust God? If you don't trust God, know this. You too, down there in Judah, are going to get overcome. And this is a turning point in the history of Israel. Because God's declared the judgment on the north, but Ahaz's lack of faith makes certain that Judah too is going to fall. God declares it right in verse 9. If you are not firm in your faith, so then we move on to verse 10 in chapter 7. Ask the Lord, again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask of a sign. God's saying, I want to give you a sign to prove to you that I'm indeed doing this. And then I think Ahaz comes back. He sounds good. He even quotes scripture, Deuteronomy chapter 6, 16. Jesus quotes the same text against the devil. I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. But God had already said to him, I want you to ask of me a sign. And he denies it. He, he won't go there. And I think it's a sure sign of lack of his faith. And what we read about now, after this and the rest of the chapter, is God's declaration that Ahaz is going to go down. Not only Ahaz, but the entire Judean kingdom, both the north and the south, are going to be wiped out, and Isaiah chapter 6 is going to be fulfilled. There's going to be a burning of the entire land, and it will dwindle down to one. Now look with me at verse 13 of chapter 7. All of this is setting a background for our passage. And the Lord said, after Ahaz's expression of faithlessness, Hear then, O house of David. He turns from talking to the king to talking to the entire people of Judah, the house of David. Is it too little for you? Now, you don't read it in English, but that you there is plural. He's talking to the whole people, every individual Judean. Is it too little for you to weary men that you, plural, weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you, plural, will give a sign to the people. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she shall call his name Emmanuel. This one, this son, who has bound up in his identity the very makeup of God, God with us, born of a virgin, an amazing sign, a real sign. If this happens, it marks something. This one shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Everything I read about that said, this is a poor man's food. 
suggesting that he's born into very, very tough times. When Emmanuel is born, the land is already experiencing not plenty, but extreme want. They're surviving on all that the milk can give, and likely this honey is not from bees, but squished out of... um, So the commentator said... Uh, tree sap or um, the leftovers of, of the, uh, like the fruit core, anything that was left, and it's just squished out, and that's, that's the sweet sauce. That's all they have. He's born into poverty. For, verse 16, before the boy knows how to refuse evil and choose good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Now this sounds, at first blush, like this Emmanuel is going to come immediately, like like really soon. The rest of the book, though, goes on to tell us No, it's going to be a while yet. But there's something about this moment that is directly linked to the coming of this Emmanuel. And it is a true statement that while he is still young, before he's even risen as king and gained his kingdom, as we're going to read about in our passage, before he's matured and made all things well, the very kings, Ahaz, that you're considering trusting will have been long past. The land will have been long deserted. But when this Emmanuel shows up, he will enter into a broken place. A place of desolation. A place of want. And that's the sign to the people. The people that indeed, it appears, when he shows up, know this, the judgment of God has already come when Emmanuel shows up. That's the long-range sign of judgment. So then we read in verse 17, God talks again via His prophet Isaiah to the king directly again. This you in verse 17 is all, all the you's and the yours are singular. The Lord will bring upon you, Ahaz, and upon your people, that's Judah, And upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah. That's the divided kingdom. Who will he bring? He'll bring the king of Assyria. So there is this sense that, okay, we just heard in Isaiah 6 that this prophet in his lifetime has a ministry. It's a ministry that we already saw, is going to be carried on all the way into the days of Jesus. Jesus is going to carry out even Isaiah's ministry. Paul is going to carry out Isaiah's ministry of proclaiming to deaf people and blind people, keep living like you are, lest you turn and be healed. Why won't they listen? That's Paul's explanation. It's Jesus' explanation. Why so many people refuse to listen to them? Because Sin is not only worthy of judgment, sin is judgment. 
and God was bringing judgment on the world. Isaiah's ministry started, though, in these very days. And the judgment of God that was anticipated to come through Isaiah started in these very days. Now, chapter 8 comes in, and there we're told that Isaiah himself has children. We've already learned about uh, one or two of his kids up to this point, but we learn about Maher Shalal Hashbaz. This new son who's going to come, and his name is actually four names. Maher, speed, shalal, spoil, hash, haste, and baz, booty. Speed, spoil, haste, booty. His own life represents what's about to come on the people of Israel. The judgment will come with speed. The result will be spoil. It will be filled with haste. And the result will be booty. His own name embodies the judgment of God. And there's four names in one. Keep that in mind as we come into our passage. This one is called an immediate sign. Uh, Where is it? Um... So God says in verse 3, or what we read about is Isaiah says in verse 3, so God told me that I'm going to bear this son. It's not the same son, I don't believe, that we read about in verse 14 of chapter 7. That's Emmanuel. This is Maher Shalal Hashbaz. So Isaiah says, I went to the prophetess and she conceived and bore a son. She was not a virgin. Then the Lord said to me, call his name, Maher Shalal Hashbaz, for before the boy knows how to cry, my father, my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be carried away before the king of Israel. The mother of Emmanuel was not identified. She's a virgin unnamed. The mother of this child is named. This is a more immediate sign that even before the child that she's conceived in her womb grows up and can even begin to speak, Mommy, Daddy, the judgment will have already started. Now there's grief. Look at verses 7 and 8. Behold, the Lord is bringing up against... These northern kings, the waters of the river, that is the Euphrates, pouring down. Mighty and many, the king of Assyria and all his glory. And it will rise over its channels, it will go over its banks. So the the armies are like the water overflowing from the great river, pouring down through the Middle East, down into Israel. And it will sweep on into Judah. Even beyond Israel, the waters of judgment will reach. It will overflow and pass on, reaching even to the neck. And its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. I think the prophet is grieving for this future Emmanuel who would come 
saying, your own land, born as a Jew, under the law, from Bethlehem, your very people rebellious, your very people experiencing the very curse of God. Oh, Oh, Emmanuel. And he's grieving for this future God-man, the world that he will have to enter, the mess that he will have to fix. And then in verses 11 through 22 of chapter 8, there's this sense of hope that's given. Look at verse 18. I, Isaiah says, and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwell on Mount Zion. Isaiah's a sign. He's a proclaimer in his own voice of the judgment of God upon the people. It's coming. It's coming. His own son bears a name that declares all of you are going to be booty. It's going to happen fast. The judgment of God. But not only that, Isaiah and his family are some of the only few in Judah who are trusting in God and holding fast to His name. Look at verse 12 of chapter 8. Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear. He's calling to the remnant. But the Lord of hosts, Him you shall honor as holy. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. Verse 16, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. For most of the people, Isaiah's message was like a closed up book. It couldn't be read. It needed to be opened up. It had a seal. They couldn't get in. We'll see that more in Isaiah 29. But for Isaiah and his family and for any who would join, their lives were a picture of the hope of those who could exist through the midst of darkness, trusting in Emmanuel, that he would one day come. Keep waiting. Keep looking. Verse 17, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. All of those around me will enter into anguish and darkness. Now we come to verse chapter 9, verse 1. All of those around me are thrust into thick darkness, but there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The former time. The words that we get here are gloom, no more gloom. Anguish, no more anguish. In the former time, gloom, anguish, contempt was what characterized the northern kingdoms. And it specifies these two, Zebulun and Naphtali. So you see Zebulun here, and you see Naphtali. All of, both of those uh, stand in, in the region, it has a specific name in northern Israel. Anybody know? Galilee. 
in the region of Galilee. And that's where Jesus grew up. Two main cities in Jesus' life other than Jerusalem? Anybody? Capernaum in Naphtali. Nazareth in Zebulun. Just keep that in mind. Here's what we learn. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured Ijon, Abel-Bet-Makkah, Janoah, Kedesh, Hatzor, Gilead, and Galilee. All the land of Naphtali. He carried the people captive to Assyria. This was stop one. Samaria hasn't been destroyed in 1 Kings 15. That doesn't happen until 1 Kings 17. But the declaration is... This, I mean, this is the place. Naphtali, Zebulun, it's the first region, naturally, that the Assyrian king would come down and overcome. They're the first place that the light went out. Day came to an end and darkness set in. Just picture the shadow, like if you're sitting on an airplane, international flight, and you can just track, track the light moving across, heading westward. Or you can track the darkness encroaching. This is the side of the darkness. And the darkness encroached in these northern tribes first. And it happened here in 1 Kings 15, the first mention of the north. And all of Naphtali was overcome. So it says here, the former time was filled with gloom, anguish, contempt. Remember, burn, and then I'll burn it again. But the hope of Isaiah 6 was that there would be a holy seed. After all of the burning has taken place, after all the judgment has come, once the curse has indeed been completed, a holy stump would rise. This is what we read. There's a latter time. He's thinking like a scope of history. He's standing here, and then there's the former time, and he's actually talking about this as if it's already accomplished. And then Isaiah even talks about the latter time as if it's already accomplished in his mind. Remember, he's a seer. He's not only able to see into the present into the very hearts of the people and identify the wickedness of their souls when they're blind to it, he's able to see into the future. And for him, the future is as if it's already accomplished. He could see it that clearly. So it says, In the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now, this is, this is awesome. This is the only place in the Bible where this region is ever called Galilee of the Gentiles or of the nations, as it has in the ESV. Don't get, don't get thrown. Usually, the New Testament translates the term for nations always as Gentiles. In the Old Testament, the term used for nations is translated nations. Why, why there's that pattern, I'm not exactly certain. 
but they're the exact same term. There's, there's not two different terms. It's all one term. The nations, so you could say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go make disciples of all the Gentiles. It's the exact same, same term, same language. All the nations. And here, it's as if he's wanting us to know that just as the darkness set first in the north, in this region, Judges 1.30, pointing to these northern tribes, what we're told is that they didn't knock out all the Canaanites. You remember that story in Judges? They're sent out, well, they didn't clean everybody out, and then it says, to this day, they still exist. And then we read in 1 Kings chapter 9 that some of the Phoenicians were actually placed up here after a battle. So that might be why it's even called Galilee of the Nations. Or it could be because it's as if the people were familiar with what this would have been, why it would be called this way already that they were familiar with it. Rather than just looking ahead to the day when the Assyrians would bring in the settlers and there would be this mixed group called the Samaritans. But there's hope here. The same kind of hope that we saw back in Isaiah chapter 2. When it said that Jerusalem, the mountain, the presence of God would be elevated in the latter days. And all the peoples, all the nations would gather to it. An international, global redemption. Where God has most of us if not all of us, unless you've got Jewish blood and I haven't heard about it yet, all of us in his mind. This is step one to the dawning of a new day. The sweeping across the land, the light moving across that screen and dawning first in the north, only to come and fill the rest of the screen with no darkness ever to follow. That's what they're envisioning. This is global hope. So now we're to our passage. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. So verse 2 I call the encounter with light and joy. Now there's no mention of joy here, but I think verse 3 actually clarifies what he means by light. You have multiplied the nation, you've increased its joy. When it says a light has dawned, what it's saying is that sorrows have fled. Joy. In 820, the judgment of God declared to the teaching, to the testimony, that's where the remnant goes, if they will not speak according to this word, it's because they have no dawn. There are many people in Isaiah's day, many people in our day, who are living in darkness and will never see the sun. Never. But we don't know which ones of those who still have breath in them are among that group. So our prayer is that God would use us as agents to open up eyes that they could see in ways they've never seen before. The light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. 8.22 They will look on earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. 
they will be thrust into thick darkness. Judgment. But now, light. Light overcoming darkness. That's what it says. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Who's in darkness? In chapter 2, right after that vision of the elevated mountain and all the nations gathering there and of all the gardening implements getting turned, sorry, all the war instruments getting turned into garden tools, this was Isaiah's call. O house of Jacob, come, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. It was only the nations that he said would be streaming to the mountain to encounter God at the end of the age. There's a big question. Who among ethnic Jews would be there? And those who refuse to listen will remain in darkness. But the hope is that there will be some who will turn to the light. This is new creation type language. Light dawning. The God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, let there be light, has shown into our hearts to give us the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. An age of darkness had set in and now it's being overcome by light. And it's all going to happen through the Messiah. Here's Isaiah and the rest of the book. I will give you, my servant Savior, as a covenant for the people a light for the nations. That's who he is. He is the light of the world. It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. No, that's not enough. I will also make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Light. And already in this book, the light is being defined as a person. I will make you this light. And if you feel like you're in the darkness right now, that is the only place where your soul will find rest, will find warmth, will find guidance. This is a question about the whole nations, Gentiles translation. If you translate it nations, it seems like it includes the challenge is that in the Old Testament, Israel is usually distinguished. They are the nation, and they're distinguished from the nations. So it's very, it does happen, but um, it's relatively rare that they are actually included among that term. So when Jesus said, you know, take the flight to the nations, you know, was he included in I think... What he was seeing, he already understood that his people had become like the nations. And so he's reconstituting Israel. I think that's why there needed to be 12 apostles. And why when one fell down, they knew they needed to add the 12th again. Because they embodied a picture of a reconstituted people of God underneath one king. And then Israel, even in, in Acts chapter 1, when, it said, when they... Jesus talks for 40 days about the kingdom of God before his ascension. And then the apostles ask, is it now that, you're, that it's time to reestablish the kingdom of Israel? I think they're thinking, 
not about an old covenant connection. They're thinking about the new covenant reality that was anticipated of an Israel that would expand and include the nations. And yet, didn't some of the disciples or the apostles have nervousness or when Paul and others went to the Gentile nations and began to I mean, there was still a lot of confusion. There was. There was confusion as to how are we supposed to work out all these details that are bound up in the Old Testament. And it took many years of prayerful meditation over the book for people like Peter and Paul to understand all the implications of the resurrection and that it's supposed to happen now. But the book of Acts, I think, is designed to help us see that expansion. It's a, it's a movement from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And with that, it's not just a geographical movement. It's an awareness movement. As the Spirit of God began to do His work. Oh, wow, Cornelius, the Gentile in Caesarea. The same thing that happened to us at Pentecost happened to them. Oh, well, I guess God's now pouring out His work among the Gentiles. We see evidence of it. And there were hints before, but Jesus even told His disciples, while I'm on earth, I'm restricted to the household of Israel. It's only afterwards that He commissions them out broader. And it, it, I mean, we read in the New Testament that they're wrestling to know how is all this supposed to work out. The source of light the source of joy. You have multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. Now, this is, this is great. The one nation has somehow multiplied with joy. Sing, O barren one. Notice where this is placed. Isaiah 54. It's right after the suffering servant experience of Isaiah 53, which climaxes with, if he will offer himself as a guilt offering, then he will see his offspring. The suffering servant of Isaiah 53 has offspring, but Jesus was never married, therefore his offspring must be adopted. We read that here. Sing, O barren one who did not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married. We'll talk about that later. Enlarge the place of your tent. It's growing. And let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right, to the left. Your offspring will possess the nations. The offspring will, will all of a sudden grow. The tent will get bigger. Once the saving servant king does his work. He'll possess the nations and will, be, will people the desolate cities. That which once was broken, he is come to fix. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth, the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth. That's where we're headed. Final section here. As with joy at the harvest... 
as they are glad when they divide the spoil. Two images, the gardening and the booty. War and peace. And the joy that comes when you're living hand to mouth and trusting God for daily bread and there's full supply. That kind of deep-seated joy. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. And the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow, and sighing shall flee away. There's a tension in this book between the already and what is not yet. And we're living in that, in that window of, of what is already ours and we've just got to claim it. We've got to hold on to it. And yet also know that it's not all here. More will come. This is not our eternal state. It's going to get better. Instead of your shame, there shall be a double portion. Instead of dishonor, they shall rejoice in their lot. Therefore, in their land, they shall possess a double portion. They shall have everlasting joy. Now keep your eyes on our passage as we look at the New Testament. The Emmanuel, all of you should have remembered, Matthew 1. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. This is the response to the fact that Joseph is told... Your wife will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And she hasn't known her husband. The text goes out of its way to let us know that. Jesus, Yahweh, save. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said. Behold, the virgin will conceive. It will be unique, distinctive, Emmanuel, God with us. And if you know that one, he is with you right now. He is not far. He is near. The one who has all authority in heaven and on earth. The one who is only good and not evil. The one in whom is light and there is no darkness at all is with you right now. Christ is the world's joy and peace. The angel said to them, fear not, shepherds, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. And it's not restricted to you. It'll be for all, for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You'll find the baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a mighty, a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Glory and peace. As we experience peace, God is glorified. He's shown big and we are provided help. Peace among those with whom He is pleased. Next week we're going to see why it is that the light shines and why it is that the joy comes. It's because the child is given. Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. The world's light has dawned in Christ. 
When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew where? Into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea. Where was he? In the territory of Zebulun, in the territory of Naphtali. So that what was spoken by the prophet of Isaiah might be fulfilled, the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, the wave of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region of the shadow of death, on them a light is dawn. From that time, Jesus began to proclaim, to preach, saying, Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The reigning God is intruding right now. The light is all of a sudden encroaching, overcoming. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of Christ. It's already happened. The darkness is passing away. The true light is already shining. I'm going to read this now. You guys can read along with me. John Newton, before the days of electric lights, was up early spending time with his father. He said, the day is now breaking. How beautiful its appearance. You can imagine, he's looking out this single pane glass window and he sees the sun rising on the horizon. The day is now breaking, how beautiful its appearance, how welcome the expectation of the approaching sun. It is this thought that makes dawn agreeable, that it is the presage of a brighter light. Otherwise, if we expect no more day than it is this minute, we should rather complain of darkness than rejoice in the early beauties of the morning. I've been up in the tree stand having enough light to see a shadow and waiting for the light to get a little bit more so that I can see my fiber optic sights awaken and hoping the deer doesn't leave by then. But I can't make it out. And believe me, I would be massively frustrated if I didn't have hope for more light. But it's one of the reasons I like to even... I don't like going out in the super cold It's nicer to go out and hunt in the evening. But what that means is if I get anything, I've got to look for them in the dark. And that's enough to make me willing to get out in my tree stand early. 45 minutes before there's even a hint of light. But believe me, I'm sitting in there expecting the light to rise. If all there was was lingering dawn, it would feel like sustained darkness. Notice what he says. If we expect no more day than it is this minute, we should rather complain of darkness than rejoice in the early beauties of the morning. Thus, the life of grace, that's where we are right now, is the dawn of immortality. Beautiful beyond expression if compared with the night and thick darkness which formerly covered us, yet faint, indistinct, and unsatisfying in comparison of the glory which shall be revealed. That gave birth to these words. In the midst of a season of challenge in my own life, the sun breaks and beauty appears, a daily reminder that all our fears of dread are past, 
though pain persists, the toil, the sorrow, a persistent mist that will be burned away in course of time, a hopeful rest when full glow shines. The light of dawn is only agreeable because the light of noon is foreseeable. If no hope existed for a brighter light, sustained shadows would be lingering night. Yet darkness is passing. The true light glows. A brightening sky overcoming sorrows. The dawn of immortality is the life we tread. A life of grace because Christ bled, taking wrath we all deserve. A gift of love to preserve a people for himself into the age to come. The curse abolished in the rise of the sun. Take comfort today that the light has dawned. We are not in the darkness. We are in the light. But take comfort today knowing that it is not yet noon, but noon is coming. And when it does, the shadows will flee and the pain will be no more and the tears will be gone. That is our hope. In Christ, the light of the world, we have hope. Father, I thank you for this day. Encourage our hearts today that we are living in the dawn, not in the night. And encourage our hearts today with greater hope that though we live in the dawn, noon is coming. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for his glory in Christ.